Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin Liu, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Zhejiang, a culture writer and critic. This week, we're discussing Euphoria, and as we see it, two shows about the pains of growing up. It never ends. It never, never ends, truly. It really doesn't. I'm sorry to our younger listeners, but we're all just the babes of humanity, and then we die. So, yeah. It's what it is. How have you been this week, babe? <laughs> um, doing okay. I have only recently realized that the Olympics are going on, and this is only because I've started getting TikToks about them surfacing in my like algorithmic feed again, and so that's really, truly the sign of a major sporting global event. Wait, is it the TikToks from the Olympians? Yeah, like showing off what the Olympic Village looks like. Uh, you know what what is their like? What do their swag uh, boxes look like? And then like yeah, some yeah, yeah. clips of figure skating. I guess yeah. This algorithm can sense that I am interested in watching tiny clips of exceptional figure skating. Well, you watch the Japan ones, right? So, who from your observations on TikTok, whose village is the better village? Oh, well, it looks like it, it's hard because maybe some of the the villages that I, like the the bedrooms that I've seen surfaced on for the Beijing Olympics right now are like for the top tier athletes, but it definitely seems like some of the facilities for the Beijing Olympics are are looking a little nicer than the ones in, in Tokyo. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Pellin, how are you doing uh, besides not watching any of the Olympics? I cheated on my nail tech, dude, this week. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I have a nail artist that I've been like fostering a relationship with because wow. okay. she's great. Uh-huh. And her whole thing is like looking after nail health as well. And I don't know why that's important to me, but there is definitely a flex about having really, really strong nails. Mm. Um, it's a very empty flex because what do you <laughs> use your nails for? A lot, like, I, I guess. Mean, like they're, they're, part of, really? they're part of your fingers, right? Sure. But then like, unless I've been kidnapped and I need to scratch my way out of something, I don't really see the point in having strong fingernails. Anyway, basically she's great. Love her, but she's always booked out or she's like traveling and is doing like something Mm -hmm. somewhere else like a week residency somewhere else and it was just too long for my next appointment with her and there's like a nail salon near me in bay ridge that i went to and uh they fucking crushed it dude shout out to my chinese girls in nail salons fucking crushing it with (laughs) nail art and not getting the credit they deserve but don't tell my nail tech that i usually go to are you gonna like switch over from like regularly uh well i have a stand i have an appointment uh, like late February, but we'll see. Maybe. I don't know. Anyway, speaking of nail art, uh, what have you been watching this week, Jenny? The the worst transition of all time, but we'll, we'll, we'll it allow out. it. So I have been watching Euphoria, which is on HBO. Yes. This is, of course, the very, I would say by now, infamous teen drama series, uh, which has recently returned for its second season three years after the first season premiered. Yeah. Um, so at this point when we're recording this, we're only four episodes into season two, which is like a little bit early for us. You know, we prefer to talk about a TV like towards the, the end of its run, but uh, it's going to be okay because we're going to be talking about kind of the whole show as just like an entity, a, a general concept. The existential question of euphoria. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. So, of course, Euphoria, it is created and written by Sam Levinson. Uh, you might know we talked about his film Malcolm and Marie on a previous episode. Yeah. And Sam Levinson loosely adapted Euphoria from an Israeli miniseries of the same name. 
So this stars an ensemble cast as troubled high schoolers navigating a whole bunch of stuff like not only identity and relationships and sex, but like drugs and trauma and criminal activity and gangs. Um, and first and foremost, the star is Zendaya, who plays the narrator and main character Rue, who is a recovering slash struggling drug addict. So this show is like everywhere, of course, right now. I'd say in terms of like teen slash high school shows, of which there are like a lot, like TV loves them. This is probably the biggest one out there. It is notoriously HBO's first teen drama series, really getting the HBO treatment. And it's hugely popular, I think. Like, every time an episode drops, there are so much content, TikToks, tweets, uh, everything about what's happening. And uh, if you look at the subreddit, which I always kind of use as sort of a gauge of how popular a series is with like loyal viewers, mm-hmm. it has yeah. a huge uh, following, like 160,000 members in subreddit, Reddit, which Damn. is like big. Um, yeah. Teens love it. Adults also <laughs> love talking about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's it's huge. So how do you feel about Euphoria, Pellin? Honestly, with the second season, I was like, wait, season three? Just because I don't know why I assumed between the first season and it's now been a there'd long been a time. season. Yeah. yeah. And um, there have been a couple of uh, special, like one-off specials in between, but... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Like, this is something that I felt since watching the first season, and it's something that I still feel now, although I don't know how, how I feel about the second season, but we'll get into that uh, a little bit later. But the first season, I was like, oh, this is just a, an extremely polished American Skins, which mm. just in terms of like, this is a grittier version where the themes are a little bit more like gnarly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not as like stupid as like my girlfriend slept with your girlfriend or like whatever. The f- I don't know. There's not, there's not, <laughs> there's no real, like it doesn't shy away from sex and, and the approach to these teens have sex and drugs in their lives just constantly mm-hmm. running through it. So it reminded me a lot of that. And I, I always, appreciate stuff like that because there's always something very taboo about it and it, you know mm. just anything to make mothers gasp about teenagers and children on tv is always something that it's like it's its own subgenre. Yeah. not that it has to exist but it's always funny that it's just something that every couple of years comes back up again yeah um, i yeah. was thinking about like uh the original reaction to gossip girl like the the mm-hmm. oj gossip girl back when it came mm-hmm. out and at for the time, I guess it seemed to shock like a lot of uh, parents groups, like whatever. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Gossip Girl was like very different in tone. It was definitely kind of yeah campy. It was like it knew that it was like campy, especially the, as it uh, went on, like the original yeah. run. Um, versus this show, I find one of its defining characteristics to me is how seriously it takes itself, oh, which yeah. is like very HBO, I guess, and very Sam Levinson. Gossip Girl was controversial for like network uh, TV, whereas I think Euphoria is classically HBO controversial, mm-hmm. which means like you know it shows whole basically. <laughs> whereas like Gossip Hole didn't. Uh, Gossip Hole. <laughs> Gossip Hole did not. Gossip Girl did not show whole. Anyway, um, yeah, I just I think initially the earnestness of it, I kind of bolted it. But because it's a weekly release, and because you have an ensemble car- like cast, and because like so many. Uh, of these characters are so different from each other it just piques your interest a little bit so Mm -hmm. i kept watching because you want to see how it gets into each and every one of their like backstories because it's carried over into the second season with some of the other characters like there's like this um the format of it is a little bit more like a cold open now yeah um it's just been interesting watching 
this generation of viewers that have Twitter that are able to talk to one another try and pick apart what it is about teens and why are why they're like this and have they changed like is it now like this because they have like social media like is it this bad just witnessing that on a large scale has been interesting yeah i agree it is intriguing to me as like a cultural phenomenon and as like a like a lens or a channel through which like a certain generation can kind of talk about this and talk about Mm -hmm. themselves in a way um i also find it interesting that you know it's it's kind of split like as for if the question is like is being a teenager like this in these days and i mean of course there's no one real answer because we have so many different kinds of teens and different yeah. teen lives uh, around just like the U.S. itself, mm-hmm. let alone the world. And like on the one hand, there are the the teens who are like, no, this is nothing like my life. And then you have teens who are like, not everything in here is like like my life. But it kind of makes me feel seen in that in the yeah. sort of themes it explores, like whether that is being able to talk about my mental health or even if yeah. i it's not like mental health paired with a drug addiction or something like that and then exactly, you have the yeah. teens who are like yes like my life is like this and you know that's because social media and the internet has ruined being a teenager and you know we have it worse than every other generation which mm-hmm. i don't know i feel like every generation says that to some degree and oh, yeah. it's impossible yeah, yeah, yeah. to kind of tell but yeah i mean something that i always think about is with any kind of show about adolescence as i get older especially there's like a feedback loop uh with things that get popular in pop culture that depict teens where you don't know if they are basing it on real people or whether teens see this and think that this is how it's meant to be and so then they do it Mm. like it's a very chicken chicken egg thing yeah. yeah because i truly believe that euphoria is important to teens now I think it's hugely important to teens right now, yeah. Because they see the looks, they see the makeup, they see what people are wearing, how they're acting, how they're talking, the music on the show. Like, all of it, especially, like, I don't know, I guess in the last couple years because of the pandemic, they're not able to go to school as much and, like, do that and, like, flex whatever it is that they're doing. But I think it becomes an ideal. Yeah, I mean, the cultural impact of Euphoria among, like, younger people, I think can't be denied but it's Mm -hmm. it's an interesting like relationship like uh, on one hand like you said there is sort of sincere or non-ironic um adoration in a way or at least like a gay a gaze on it yeah but on the other hand there is like also a kind of ironic arched eyebrow edit like which is the way i kind of feel about euphoria yeah like there's so many jokes and like memes about everything in euphoria and how uh ridiculous it is in a sense um and like there, there was like the the huge like meme right now is what it's like like going to Euphoria High, yeah. And the way that you dress, <laughs> the way that you act, um, everything. I love that. A lot of that is spearheaded by like Zoomers on TikTok, and so yeah. like they're maybe they they can both buy into it, but also be like self aware of like how absurd a lot of this stuff is in a way. Yeah, and that's probably a healthy approach in a way. I uh, agree. Like, I agree. Take like- it. You can take it seriously as a work of art, but also not take it so seriously as, like, a reflection yeah. of reality. I'm trying to think of, like, so Skins came out in 2007, and I was 18, like, 17 going on 18, which which was around about the age that a lot of the characters in Skins were. I mean, I remember watching that and thinking, none of these, there were some people in my school where this shit would happen to. Mm-hmm. And there were definitely people that took drugs, because drugs featured prominently and, like, sex featured prominently in Skins as well. 
just some background it, it aired on e4 which is cha- channel 4 which is basically the uk's version of hbo oh mm-hmm. it, it's just interesting because that show had teens in their writer's room oh and that was like one yeah. of the yeah that was one of like the coolest things about it so they can actually like influence yeah yeah and like daniel kaluuya was one of the writers too as well as acting in it but like I remember watching that at the time and just being like, I know these people. Like, there's that person that would get themselves into this situation. Like, they would do this dumb shit. Like, I don't know if they have because I don't know them personally like that. But that's the thing that teens identify with. And also, like, someone like Maddie. Like, Mm -hmm. Alexa Demi plays her so well. We all know that girl. I feel like Alexa is just playing herself. Like, we know (laughs) that girl. She plays her down to a fucking T. And I think that's the strength of it. And that's the part that feels like, oh, yeah, this feels a little bit more real. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I I will say, like, they're, like, talking about the show itself now. Like, there are a lot of things it has going for it. It has great performances. This are, like, big uh, breakthrough roles for a lot of them. Yeah. Great score. Like, the Labyrinth songs are just, like, beautiful. Cinematography is gorgeous and season two i'll know was shot entirely in film and you can kind of see of course it was <laughs> i know it's it's so expensive it's so pretentious in a way but also it looks yeah. it looks gorgeous like you can see Le- sam levinson like mm-hmm. um he's really stretching for the pinnacle of aesthetic and also being a little more experimental with the way he shoots yeah. um i think the results he's definitely building up his like real yeah you know? i think the yeah. results on on that side of things fantastic but yeah. I don't think it is, you know, benefiting the show for it to be solely under the control of Sam Levinson. He is the entire writer's room. Like, it's just him. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. It's kind of like, I don't want to project anything onto him, but it is like a, a thing of ego. Like, and uh, especially mm-hmm. like the ego of an older millennial dude who is just like in a room by himself uh, thinking about kind of like playing around with his little like diorama and an industry kid not to say that he's not good at what he's done so far and what he's trying to do like i think he's fine it's just i think the cracks are really showing in the second season like everything that i was worried about in the first it's just like so much worse in the second one where it's like you're just doing things for shock value and no real like the character development isn't as thought out as it should be Right. And the shock value plus the aesthetic, uh, leaning into the aesthetic so hard is like, there's only so much of that that I can take without yeah. feeling like I'm just watching five short films back to back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's that critique of style over substance. And yeah. I, I would agree with that. Like, especially the writing you see in some of the, the ways that some of these stories are thought out or the way that they intertwine with each other or the way they connect to even like the first season and yeah. and characters we know from the first season it's lacking some consistency and some attention to detail which that he would consider that insulting because like yeah uh, i'm sure he like works over every single detail but it's like yeah. the kind of um i don't know you kind of have tunnel vision if you were a a one-man auteur like taking on something like this and yeah you sometimes need a little bit perspective from from someone else or other people in the room but yeah it's really like this is this is his show that he's running yeah i guess like with with the arc of the characters in the second season how do you feel it's going yeah do you see a season three is it something that you're thinking about even yet well season three uh, there is gonna be season three i believe it yeah, was confirmed. It just got renewed. Yeah. yeah it's hard to tell because i'm not even sure where this season is gonna go to be honest yeah I, but i will say like the story doesn't really matter so much like in something like this 
basically it's so much focused on the look the vibes the characters what happens to the character is like who fucking knows like he yeah. Sam Levinson is yeah. gonna do whatever but it is interesting that Alison Herman wrote about this in her review for The Ringer. It's shout out to you, Alison. Yeah, thank you, Alison. <laughs> as always, for your wisdom. She pointed out like it's maybe the right way to watch this isn't as like a a show about teens, a statement about teens, like the state mm-hmm. of teenage dumb as it is right yeah. now, but about what it is to be these specific teens. And I think like that does pinpoint something that has worked, which is like creating like you said like these kind of very specific individuals and uh, making people feel emotionally invested in their fate yeah so maybe rue is not like a some sort of stand-in for the greater dire dire straits of like yeah Yeah, teen addiction but it's just her specific uh story and how fucked that fucked up that is and yeah yeah i I guess that's true like it probably is more helpful to think about it in these specific uh character terms yeah but do you have like a favorite character or like storyline uh from the show in general i mean i'm really enjoying cassie's arc this season (laughs) um i think there's something that feels very accurate with the type of girl that she is and the situation she's put herself in and how it feels like it's the end of the world for her, like keeping the secret feels so bad for her. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really enjoying that. Yeah. And Sydney Sweeney is like so, yeah, I mean, so good. The way that Sam Levinson had just totally leaned into her archetype and then the type of roles that she will play. Cause I think the thing that interests, interests me the most is how this show is a platform for star making. Cause yes, it is the yes. reason why Zendaya made the transition into a serious Hollywood actress from a Disney actress. Yeah. But I think with Sydney Sweeney, she's, she's the second most gotten the most roles out of it. But I think so too. I'm yeah. curious about like Jacob Elordi because I think that he's actually really talented and I'm curious as to why he hasn't gotten more roles like that i i mean it's tough because i think he's if he does he's gonna get typecast as like yeah the american psycho junior um and then with the rest of the cast i don't know i don't really see it for them but who knows you know who who knows how it's gonna pan out um how about you do you do you have an arc that you're interested in um i i I was interested a little bit in cat in the Mm -hmm. first season played by barbie ferrera yeah i mean that was one of the weirdest storylines to me just like going from someone who's like you know insecure about their their body their weight and then connecting that to sexuality and then becoming like a hardcore like cam girl at the age of like 16 or something yeah but also say it's interesting in that season two has kind of like almost totally dropped barbie Ferreira and and the character of cat yeah and which is apparently a a point of controversy i think behind the scenes right like people are saying like allegedly it's because like Barbie Ferreira has argued with like Sam Levinson about where her character is going. And so she's been almost entirely cut out of the season. Right. Um, which is another thing, like when you have sort of a, a soul creative vision, like it's their vision or, or get lost basically. Yeah. So that's also sort of a, a risk of just like having one person control so much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So the show, like the way that I'm going to approach it, I guess is really just like, a star making like you said i think it really does deserve that kind of uh reputation mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. also great looking really fantastic aesthetic yeah. yeah and then also just like entertainment value i think for, from the show itself as well as the 
memes and the jokes and like the conversation that sparks from it. I think like maybe the the best way for some people are taking it too seriously. Some people don't take it seriously enough. But I think the for me the the thing that I'm going to stick with is it's not that deep, you know. No, the bar is just lower for this show. Yeah, you know, you just lower the bar. It's fine. Like I don't think it's well written. I think the dialogue is fine. I'm just checking in with these people every week because it's a weekly release and it's fine to just see what's going on with these wankers. Like I don't. It's fine. Like (laughs) yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know that maybe like a kind of a frustrating conclusion because we could say that about everything and we often do, but yeah, like not that deep. The show itself, not that deep. How to, how to like receive it, respond to it. Not that deep. Not that uh, deep. Just yeah. Have fun, I guess. Yeah. This episode of Criticism is Dead is brought to you by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. So Mubi's thing is every day they premiere a new film. From iconic directors to emerging auteurs, there's always something new to discover on this platform. So with Mubi, each and every film is hand-selected. It's kind of like having your own personal film festival that's streaming anytime, anywhere, and you can watch it from home. It's very chill. For me, I watched The Terrorizers by Edward Yang. It's a Taiwanese film. Really great. Loved it so much. Mm. Uh, so I highly, highly recommend that one. What about you, Jen? So I really want to watch the Jia Zhang films that are on there, The 24 City and Swimming Out to the Sea Turns Blue. I really loved Ash's Pierce White. Um, so it's kind of weird that I haven't really seen more of his work. So for everyone else, you can also try Mubi. It's free for 30 days if you use our link, mubi.com slash criticism is dead. So that's M-U-B-I dot com slash criticism is dead. And you'll get a whole month of great cinema for free. All right, Pellin, your turn. What did you watch this week? So this week I crushed (laughs) As We See It. (laughs) So As We See It is a half hour dramedy on Amazon Prime. It's created by Jason Katims, who who wrote on Friday Night Lights. And it's starring Sue Ann Pien as Violet, Albert Rutecki as Harrison, and Rick Glassman as Jack. And Violet, Harrison, and Jack are 20-something roommates with autism, and they're taken care of by their aide, Mandy, who's played by Sosie Bacon, who you will recognize from Mare of Easttown. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Kevin Bacon's daughter. Yeah. Ex- oh, yeah. Yeah. I was trying to figure out who she looked like. You're right. <laughs> um, so this is also based on an Israeli show, um, an Israeli comedy series called On the Spectrum. The show highlights how navigating adulthood while being on the spectrum can be difficult both on the individual and also the people around them um, and it's not necessarily because of their autism but it's because of the world in which their autism exists within which you know mm-hmm. the world it sucks so i'm usually a little bit allergic to shows about autism my brother is autistic so mm. for me it's like <laughs> like my younger brother so for me it's always been a little bit uh insincere and Mm -hmm. you know in recent years there's been a couple of shows there's been like the good doctor which is the network show and there's also been atypical on netflix and i have refused to watch either one of them because i don't know i watched the trailers and i was like not for me um and this is an exception to that rule because the three actors that play the three characters on the spectrum are also on the spectrum themselves and mm. both in front and behind the camera, whether it's in the writer's room, whether it's a production assistant, there were people on the spectrum uh, present. And mm-hmm. Jason Katims is actually the father of an autistic kid as well, which doesn't necessarily qualify you to like make these shows and speak about them with authority. But the fact that he did make such a conscious effort 
to include so many people on the spectrum with the production both behind and in front of the camera was the part where I was like, well, okay, I'll give it a go. So mm-hmm. um, before we get into it, what are, what are your feelings about it? How far are you into it, Jenny? So I watched all of it. Um, yes. In like the course of 24 hours, yeah. maybe. It is a really good show. I couldn't stop watching it. It's It kind of grabs you, right? Very good. Yeah, it grabs yeah. you. The characters, you become so invested in, in what happens with them. Um, the way that, you know, they, they approach this whole topic, um, from, you know, autism, having autism, what it's like to live with autism, but also, like you said, you know, the loved ones who are worried and just want to protect their, their loved ones with, with autism. Yeah. It's done so thoughtfully, yeah. and, but also, I don't know, there's a real sense of like humanity to this. And yeah. I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And, um, all three of the main characters have, a different i wouldn't say version of autism but they deal with it in their own ways which i think yeah. is the most important thing about this because there seems to be in popular culture such a trickle down effect from something like rain man have you seen rain man do you remember rain man i feel like we all watched it when we were younger but i haven't like rewatched no. it recently no so it's the mm-hmm. dustin hoffman film with tom cruise where dustin hoffman plays uh, the person with autism and tom cruise mm-hmm. plays the person taking care of them and Oh my god, the damage that that film caused, I swear to god, because it's it's more about the savantism of of yes. autism where like mm-hmm. they are so very good at the things that they are so very good at and it's usually like music or maths or remembering details mm-hmm. or like whatever it might be. Um mm-hmm. and people just kind of see people with autism as geniuses that have social anxiety issues basically which is like far from the truth and what this show does is just really move away from that idea um Mm -hmm. and really kind of root into each character's own personality because these people are not just they're not just their autism they are their their own people with autism Mm -hmm. so the way that it kind of differs between the three of the characters um yeah that's what makes it interesting like you get to check in with each and every one of them at whatever it is that they're trying to deal with um Yeah. yeah I thought that was really, really well done. Different sort of spots on the spectrum, different personalities, different family background and like family yeah, support. Yeah, yeah. And just like, like one person is like struggling with like, there are struggles with careers, mm-hmm. there's struggles with relationships and friendships. Yeah. There are struggles with, um, you know, family health and just like every single aspect that, of course, we all deal with, yeah. but these are sort of slotted into each person's storyline in different ways, uh, made it really sort of dynamic yeah, to watch. Yeah, definitely. And something that I think this show does really well that you don't even realize is happening is it says something true about life, whether you're on the spectrum or not, which is that life is very fragile and anything can break it at any given point. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we mm-hmm. start off with a seemingly sound structure in which these three people uh, live in in terms of just the tangible living circumstances they are three roommates mm-hmm. as the show progresses you realize that they've known each other basically their whole lives like for a very very long mm-hmm. time and the three of them are living together harrison's parents are providing for mandy the aid like her salary and they and the other two families of of the people with uh with autism chip in basically and it's like this structure like they're able to kind of live out their adulthood but they have an aid that can kind of help them navigate life but then if one thing goes wrong the whole thing kind of comes crumbling down this is definitely true i think for someone that like might live with autism in terms of like where they are on the spectrum but it's definitely true 
in general for adulthood as you navigate adulthood like you are just figuring it out you're trying to get a job you're trying to showcase that you're responsible that you're doing it like it's just it's Mm -hmm. there is a universality in it if you choose to see Mm -hmm. it which i think this show really tries to do i don't don't think it's like doing too much with regards to being like this is happening because they're autistic to some extent yes because i think there's drama in it and that's the central tension of it essentially but I've got to say, like, <laughs> like half the shit that they're worried about, um, you would worry about whether you're on the spectrum or not. Yeah, like, there's there's that point where the aide, Mandy, she's, like, consoling Violet, and she was, like, getting mistreated by some asshole guy, like, getting your heart broken by some asshole, that's as normal as yep. it gets. Um, like, you are living the normal life, like, we all have to deal yep. with that. And it's true, and that that reigns true for a lot of us, like dealing with um, like the sickness of of a guardian, of a father, uh, and the heartbreak of that, or you know, trying to work through your first relationship, yeah. and or feeling so lost because you feel like your friends or your family are abandoning yeah. or betraying you in a sense. Yeah, yeah they're all very universal, um, but they also you know work in very specific ways to each character and their circumstances yeah. here. And yeah, it's just a really great combination of like both, you know, the, these are themes maybe you didn't have to think about if you don't have autism, if you don't know someone with autism, but also like these are themes that we all have to deal with, the, the universal aspect of it yeah. all. Speaking of the characters, do you have a favorite out of the three? Oh, they're all so good in different all, ways. Yeah, they're all great. It's true. Um, I think I might be partial to jack uh, oh interesting yeah i i really liked you know his whole thing he has to deal with his father's sickness and like there's almost a reversal of the sorts where it was for the his whole life it's his dad who was taking care of him mm-hmm. and now he has to not only worry about like okay who will continue to take care of me in the future but like how do i now show that i can take care of my dad in yeah. a sense yeah and you know his whole romantic arc i don't know i i just i really liked what they showed with jack and yeah. i found him like a prickly but a funny character like he provided a lot of those sort of quips i i i love i love how they show how much he cares through the lens of his personality and through the lens yeah. of his his autism too because he's one of those guys that just <laughs> with or without the autism he would be a prick yeah. <laughs> so it's really heartwarming that you see him uh try and help his father through his strengths which is like collating information uh mm-hmm. figuring out probability just trying to figure yeah. out what's the best for him and what isn't and and the heartbreak of that you mm-hmm. know yeah i think for me mm-hmm. um violet and her brother van really mm. just uh really fucked me up dude <laughs> like and yeah. you know van is played by chris pang who crazy rich Asians. yeah who, you will right yeah exactly crazy he's the best mate in crazy rich agents he looks fantastic in this yeah just real hotty uh <laughs> i would say that even though he's doing the best that he can in this i don't think he's i i, I would have liked someone that's a little bit more skilled um but maybe that's just his prettiness getting in the way i don't know but regardless of that the way that those two as bro- like that brother and sister dynamic mm-hmm. uh it just um again i i'm a sibling and i don't know if uh violet is younger than van but it certainly seems that way I, she, she is, is right I yeah she's she's 26 yeah yeah, yeah. he's 29 yeah, so it's the same thing for me like my younger my younger sibling is the one that i'm worried about always and i'm very overprotective as well so just seeing that dynamic was uh 
really hit me in my chest, but I think the main strength is just Violet. I would die for her. I think she is so funny and so heartbreaking. <laughs> and I think Su An Pien is such a fantastic actress. Like she's so good at just like in within like ten seconds, she breaks your fucking heart. And it's just mm-hmm. yeah, I, I love her very much. And I think Violet is also She's such a multi-layered female character as well. Like, it's been a minute since I've seen someone that's just, like, trying to take charge of their life, you know? Mm-hmm. And she is doing that. And it, it's it's really... She's someone that frustrates you, but is yeah. also... You have to respect it. And I think, like, through Mandy as well, their aid, you really get to see why you should have more empathy for someone as strong-headed as her. Because I don't, I don't think we're, we're used to strong-headed female characters in general but the fact that Violet is so earnest in what she wants in life and I guess to Van's point doesn't really understand how the world works in terms of Mm -hmm. like how many people are out to hurt her and us through Van through just understanding how life is um, I think that's the part where you realize Violet should want what she wants she should get what she wants and it's Mm. we're angry at the world for not being able to give her that it's not it's not her fault but it's it's a world that's not accommodating or or kind enough uh, to be able to provide that, which like yeah. anyone should be able to get like independence, safety, freedom to to live life in a sense. Yeah, exactly. Aside from Violet and Van, I want to talk a little bit about Mandy, the the mm-hmm. aide, the carer. What do you what do you think about her arc in this season? I think I really respected what they were trying to do. Which, again, it goes along with kind of one of the missions of, like, highlighting what it's like within this whole orbit. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. she is arguably kind of, like, the axis of the whole orbit. Yeah. Um, she has – it's her job to hold everything together. Yeah. And, like, take on all of that responsibility, a lot of the emotional, you know, stress. It's not an easy job in any sense. So I – I kind of respect it. I liked what they were trying to do. They were showing like how she is like stuck in thinking, should I stay here? Should I pursue my quote unquote future? Yeah. And these are like the rock and the hard place that she's stuck between. Mm -hmm. But also just like how much every single family puts on her in terms of like expecting her to be there, expecting her to do this, pitting their whole hopes and dreams on her being able to stay for another year and maybe like stall her relationship and stall her potential future with her long distance boyfriend yeah so i yeah i really empathize or or sympathize with her as a character it's the way that she is um convenience for everybody else Mm -hmm. it's just that what the way that the show grapples with whether or not it is an inconvenience for her is interesting because Yeah. Like, throughout it, she is worried about, like, everybody. Like, even, like, the people in the show trying to figure out adulthood, trying to figure out her next move, trying to figure out what her future looks like. Mm -hmm. But the central tension with her is, do I need to go and get a degree or, like, get into the medical field? Mm -hmm. Am I going to have more of an impact in terms of, like, how I'm affecting these people's lives? Like, it's so much more direct. It's so much more immediate. And I think... I think that's the question for carers in general because they are, you know, when they're great, they are angels on earth, basically. They they make life worth living for so many people in terms of, mm-hmm. like, the ease in which they bring the day-to-day life. And I think through Mandy, you really get to see, like, what does impact mean for a carer? 
And it's like the same thing with like grassroots activism too, yeah. which is it's immediate. Mm-hmm. You you do something, you're on the ground, you are helping these people in a direct and transformative way. And it isn't, yeah, yeah, like it isn't like a medical degree where like you're doing research and helping millions, but you get to see it and you get to feel it and you get to see the gratitude on everybody's face when you do it. And just her having to figure that out is is really. I don't know if that's what they were meaning to showcase, but that's what I picked up on. No, I, I totally, I totally think so. And you know that that question of like kind of credibility or legitimacy, mm-hmm. like going to medical school, getting the research, that is considered kind of like the this is the route that your future should take. Like this is kind of what it means to grow up and to have a career. Yeah. Versus, you know, you stay here, you continue to work here, you do have a direct impact on people's yeah, lives, yeah, like you were saying. Yeah. But that is sort of like not viewed quite the same. Mm-hmm. And you see also in like just like the the way, like you said, that she gets treated as a convenience. Yeah. Like if she could stay and have this direct in- impact, continue to work, but also, you know, feel some kind of relief in some sense. Yeah. Like she's not tethered to the needs of three people above her own yeah. needs uh, 24-7. Like I, I'm sure like the the dignity of the job might might change a little bit the calculus mm-hmm, of that. Mm-hmm. But it's just that so much of like what direct caretaking, direct like um, impact work, grassroots, like the it's attached to so much like extra sort of pressure yeah. and labor and not just no sense of relief yeah. that um, sort of these higher calling like uh, research yeah. or I don't know what you would call yeah. those, those those other kinds of roles and that, and on the flip side of that you have the pressure of society on you with that to perform and yeah. like be the best and like just do the best research and all of that it's there's pressure either way but yeah i mean it's mm-hmm. it's um i think the main thing is like that question of sacrifice and what that mm-hmm. means and if there is any to begin with. and i think that's the thing that she's been figuring out season long is like is am i sacrificing myself for them or is this actually what i want to be doing um, and are we right. both gaining something out of this? Yeah. You know, we talked about Abbott Elementary last week. I think teachers in general have been in the conversation, like, thanks to, like, Adele um, as well. It's sort of like, who is that person that makes an everlasting impact on you? Is it someone that's a politician that passed a bunch of bills? Right, or is right. it, or is it you know, your, I don't know, sixth grade teacher? Um, yeah. And it's usually the latter. <laughs> so mm-hmm. um, everybody knows how to lord these people but like on a day-to-day are we taking care of them uh probably right, not like exactly that, i think that's like the interesting part about it and i hope if we get a second season we get a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of it because i feel like i just this season even though it kind of gave me everything that i wanted i still because it's such good food you just want more of it so i hope mm-hmm. we do get it um i really recommend this uh, it's it's honestly the quickest couple of hours that i've spent which is saying a lot uh, in the recent TV landscape, and I highly recommend it. Please check it out. So this week in culture, we're kind of doing a fun little thought experiment, I guess, or uh, <laughs> yeah. discussion topic. So uh, my coworker uh, at Gawker, Olivia Craighead, uh, who I believe listens to this podcast. So hi, Olivia, hi, Olivia. if you're listening to this. Yeah. Um, she wrote a piece recently that I thought was uh, really excellent, titled Someone Help Rosamund Pike. So oh, God. this was tied to the news that Rosamund Pike is going to star in a movie called Rich Flu, <laughs> which is a quote-unquote poignant-sounding thriller in which a deadly disease starts killing off the wealthy. Yes. So that sort of like raises the question, 
what is Rosamund Pike doing? Yeah, what, um, what's going just on, sweetheart? So much of her career, you know, she was in Gone Girl, but in the the almost decade since that, it's just been a, a series of really interesting, mm. I'll say, question mark, interesting choices. Mm. So, yeah, what's what's her deal? What's going on there? So, I just want to say, off rip, Rosamund, we're not just coming for you. We're coming for actors and actresses in general. I do think that actors, they have a bunch of roles that they just take the L. Like, I really do think that that is a reality, that every single actor that you know has a bunch of films, maybe 30% of their career, that they're just not proud of, and we don't really hear about them, and it, no one ever talks about it. I think the mm. issue with Rosamund Pike is that she hasn't even had the other percentage where she is doing <laughs> great, and I think it's just been L after L after L. Yeah. I mean, her thing is, like, she is wonderful in everything she's in. She's a terrific performer, yeah. but the projects she chooses are so baffling but the thing is like olivia said in her article they make sense on paper like the (laughs) characters themselves like you understand why she picks them because you know there seems to be some kind of like complication or just i think she's really into like a complicated female woman yeah Yeah. because i mean she is typecast i think i think like after we watched i care a lot I i feel like a she's typecast b i think it suits her to play that person and I think she thinks it's interesting to play someone that's complicated or an anti-hero or whatever. So, you know, whether it's a war journalist that she's decided to play or whether it's, you know, the character and I care a lot, it all makes sense as to why she took the roles. It's but just... can, like, the whole... Can the whole movie be better, though? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I have to say this as a caveat, just because I feel mm-hmm. like people forget it after they do a little bit of idol worship. Actors aren't very smart. Even the smart mm. ones are not that smart. Uh, I promise you. Like, and you kind of, <laughs> you kind of clock it, uh, a little bit if you, if you look for it. I think this is that. I think she just thinks maybe she's smarter than she is or whatever it might be. And then on the flip side, I'm wondering if something that smart actors do, which is they follow the director that they like or they follow the, the hottest director or whatever. I wonder if she has been auditioning for roles with, great directors and they've just turned her down Mm. she just didn't get the roles yeah i guess we're not like privy to a lot of the information or what goes on behind that it's a shame though i think she really is a uh she's a very good performer yeah i i watched the series wheel of time on amazon Mm. a couple months ago which is like Mm. i i wouldn't subject yourself to it it's like a very mediocre show um and this is as someone like who has a soft spot for like fantasy Mm, so mm. um of course like she is the maybe the only good actor in that Mm. but there's not much you know you can do to salvage a role like that when everything around you the writing is just and the the performances are so terrible well that's interesting because i feel like everyone wants that role because they just want their solid seven years of work like like thrones yeah it very much might be like the um it's it's a check it's a nice big amazon check yeah yeah and for sure like i I can and maybe it'll be like super impactful in the culture like game of thrones was um yeah this one was I don't think anyone. I don't. I don't no, think anyone watched it. No, it's, it's a, yeah, it's a shame. I do want more for her. I do think that she has the capacity to to really bring about some wonderful roles. Like that, again, like she with Gone Girl, like that wouldn't have really happened if he, she wasn't working with Fincher. So I feel like she just needs the right director to tell her what to do. And I think the issue since Gone Girl is that she hasn't worked with a director that knows what to do with her or knows yeah. how to make a good film. You know, what if she got paired with a 
Maggie Gyllenhaal for Ooh, whatever her next one I is. I see it. I really see it. I don't know if Manga would want to work with her. I feel like maybe they're... <laughs> I have this thought in my mind that maybe they're just like arch nemeses. Like they kind of hate each other. Mm. Like two shrewd Similar seeming. age. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well. Yeah. Good luck to you, Good, l- good luck to you. A... We really are rooting for you, sweetheart. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's it from us this week. If you are watching anything you think we should check out, please let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us or DM us at criticismisdead, all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. For extended show notes, thank you, Jenny. This is the highlight of my week also, is uh, sign up Aww. to our substack, criticismisdead.substack.com. We have links to everything we've been talking about uh, and then some. So stay on top of it, guys. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts with a sweet five stars. We really appreciate everybody that's been doing it so far. We will shamelessly ask for that five stars every week. Don't you worry. And uh, (laughs) tell a friend about us because that's, you know, word of mouth. We've heard that that's the way that things get marketed the best. So do that. And uh, we will see you all next week. Thank you so much. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin Lu and Jenny Chijang. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.